eternity hangs on your response to Christ. We're going to meet this morning, or encounter this morning, some folks we were introduced to in last week's message from Pastor Kerry, these, these Jewish critics of Jesus' behavior. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and the Gospel of John, chapter 5, concerns itself with the healing of a man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, a man who was a, a 38-year uh, veteran of lying by that pool, unable to walk, whom Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. And the, uh, the Jewish leadership who perceived themselves as the watchdog guardians of, of the minutia of Sabbath regulation responded pretty violently against this man's, not his being healed, but his picking up his mat. Because Jesus, when he healed him, said to him, take up your mat and go on. And the moment he lifted that piece of furniture, as they would have framed it, he had violated the Sabbath law, and so the Jewish leadership came after Jesus. The last verse of the passage we covered last week, verse 17 uh, Jesus answered them and said, my father is working until now and I am working as they criticized his doing these things on the Sabbath as according to verse 16. This morning we, we will be looking at a, the beginning of a discourse where Jesus responds to them. Jesus' response to these leaders takes up the rest of chapter five. We won't cover all of that in a single Lord's day but we'll look at it this week and next. Before we go too much further though, I think it's important that we, that we frame something correctly regarding our understanding of, of these that are called the Jews in this passage. They are the, the Jewish leadership. Scribes, the Pharisaic, uh, the Pharisees, the priests, the leaders of national religious Judaism. I, I confess I have, a, I have a tendency regarding these guys. From, a, from a, most of a lifetime spent studying the Gospels and, and seeing how they behave themselves whenever they interact with Jesus, my, my tendency is to reduce them to sort of, I don't know, sort of comic book villains. You know, I always picture them wearing their, 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 their um, heavy-duty black robes, and sort of, sort of twirling their mustaches and standing, lurking, in fact, around the edges of Jesus' ministry, waiting to pounce on stuff, you know, when they're, not, when they're not tying innocent young women to the railroad tracks, you know. Sort of silent movie villainy. But that's not the whole 360 of who these guys were. They were viewed... Honestly, they were viewed heroically by the Jews of, of, of first century Israel. Here's why. In the centuries leading up to what we call the first century AD, in those, in those countdown BC centuries, the Jewish nation had been hauled off to Babylon, had been scattered a different part of the Jewish nation had been scattered by the Assyrian Empire. And then when they got back into the Holy Land after that 
that scattering, those who came home, and that captivity, those who came home, they were overrun by the Greek empire. And then as the Greek empire subsided, they were invaded and dominated by the Roman empire. So they've not had national autonomy in more than half a millennium. And yet when we come to the first century, we, we see a distinct Jewish culture has survived all that. Jewish worship has survived all that. The Jewish way of life. <coughs> the Jewish broad understanding of the character of God. All of that has survived these successive horrific conquests and invasions. Largely because of these leaders. They were the cultural standard bearers. They were the protectors and articulators of the Jewish way of life. And as the popular culture of their day viewed them, they were heroes. This is how I've said it in your notes, at that, that top paragraph on your notes. The Jews in this passage were highly respected, extraordinarily righteous, very disciplined, well-beloved, and regarded rightly as cultural religious leaders. The only thing they got wrong is Jesus. I think that when we examine them in that lens, we have a better opportunity to examine our own hearts, the state of our own faith, especially when we're the sort of people who'd punch a hole in a perfectly good weekend to come sit in a worship service. Not accusing you of Pharisaism, far from it, but I'm inviting you, my religious friend, who strives to do the right thing, who strives to bring the right sort of influence into the culture we, we share, who's striving to get everything right. Don't get everything right except Jesus. The reality of Jesus made them murderously angry. We see that expressed in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. See what Jesus had just done. Jesus had just said that, that you have a hang up with how I'm conducting myself on the Sabbath. I'm paraphrasing, but this is the intent of what Jesus said. Yes, the living God rested on the Sabbath day, the seventh day from his work of creation, but he didn't rest because he was tired. He rests to set an example so that you and I would realize that we are not to have a rhythm of seven-day sameness in our lives, but we are to set aside a day every week to break our usual routine and devote a day to worship and to regrouping spiritually, emotionally, physically, that we would be ready for the other six days to live in our routine way. 
But Jesus said, the Father works on the Sabbath. He's working all the time. And so am I. In effect, Jesus claimed lordship over the Sabbath, which is a claim to equality with God, which caused these Jewish leaders head to explode. So they were murderously angry at Jesus as he is and as he claims to be. They sought to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, verse 18 continues, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Thus my title this morning, Jesus equals God. Jesus is God. The... uh, Down the ages, from the first century during the ministry of Jesus to the 21st century today, there are those who have sought to make Jesus less than fully God. There are those who have have sought to make him uh, a great moral example, a gifted philosopher, teacher, whatever sort of noble person he may have been, but surely not God. In fact, I've, I've read authors who foolishly say Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus' claims to be God are all over the Gospels. It's the central theme of this entire chapter. This entire discourse in John 5 is Jesus repeatedly claiming to be God. Pastor and author, author John MacArthur, author John MacArthur, say that three times fast. Pastor and author John MacArthur calls Jesus' assertion that he was equal with God the most startling claim ever made. See, sane people don't claim to be God. If you claim to be God, you're either God or you're nuts. If you claim to be God and you're not Jesus, you're nuts. Jesus' claim to be God, while it is the most startling claim ever made, it's also true. It's also true. And we see in this portion of this discourse that we're going to look at today five ways that Jesus claims to be God. Five ways that Jesus is God. Roman numeral one, Jesus discerns God's will. And he does so perfectly. He does so perfectly. Verse 19 and the first part of verse 20. So Jesus said to them, by the way, that little phrase frames the rest of chapter five. The rest of chapter five is Jesus' discourse aimed at these religious leaders who would not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, the son, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In short, the Holy Trinity, the God who exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, always acts in perfect accord within himself. God the Son moves in utter submission, obedience, and understanding of God the Father's will. They are in perfect synchronization. I thought of a, of a picture of that, and I thought back to my own childhood. I grew up on, the, on and right near the beach, up in Atlantic Beach. 
And I remember several times as a kid, I don't remember the occasion, but I remember standing on the beach when the, the United States Navy Blue Angels. Anybody but me ever seen the Blue Angels in flying exhibition? You know what I'm talking about? They're the Navy's precision flying team. And I know they're based over in Pensacola, but from time to time when I was a kid, they either would come over to Mayport or they'd come over to NAS Jacksonville or something. And I remember standing on the beach as just a little guy and these, these, uh, these blue and gold liveried fighter jets would whoosh down the beach. And I don't remember, I think five of them. And they would be, they'd be flying so close that it looked like their wingtips were about to touch. Now, I don't know if that's... It, 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 it's, it may be more than inches, but it's not many feet that their wings are right there. And they're flying at uh, whatever full out is. And all of a sudden, they go, whoo, and they all bank at exactly the same instant. It's got to be exactly the same instant, because if they don't, it's fireball city, right? They are, they are moving as though there's one mind doing the driving, though it was one pilot per plane. The level of precision, the level of understanding, we're going to do precisely this at precisely this instant was breathtaking. Even as a little kid, I didn't understand all the physics involved in that. I just thought, that's really, really cool. And that's the picture that comes to mind for me. And I know all illustrations and pictures break down if you push them too far. But for me, that picture of, no, now we're doing this. No, now we're doing this. And everything going together so precisely is, is sort of akin to what Jesus is saying here. I don't, I don't act autonomously from the will of my Father, which I understand perfectly. You and I can know and do the will of God. We have, we have God's word to tell us what God's will is, by the way. We have God's word and God's word alone to tell us what God's will is. It is the only certain guide to God's will. Chasing the rabbit a couple of feet further down the hole. Christian, if you've got a decision to make in your life that is in a matter not addressed by God's word, if you're gonna buy a new laptop and you don't know what brand to buy, you're gonna buy a pair of shoes, you're going to live on this street or that street. You're going to attend this school or that school. And it's a matter where God's word has not spoken. Do you know the key to discerning God's will in matters where he has not spoken? It's to obey him in matters where he has. I've known too many people who have unresolved sin issues in their life where they know they're living in disobedience and yet they're, they're torturing themselves over what color socks to put on in some sort of torturous pursuit of what they call seeking God's will. If you don't obey him in what he has said, don't make noise about seeking to obey him where he hasn't spoken. Put another way, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Oh, that's good. I wish I had made that up. Solomon came up with that one long about 3,000 years ago. Jesus 
knew and did the Father's will perfectly. Therefore, Jesus is God. Roman numeral two, Jesus does God's works. Jesus does God's works. First, his miraculous works. The rest of verse 20. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. I'm gonna be doing things that only God can do within my purpose to seek and save the lost. We've already seen at this point the first three of John's seven signpost miracles. Jesus did miracles beyond the seven that John highlights. But in these seven, we see unique signposts pointing to the truth that Jesus is God. Water into wine is the creation of something from that which is not there. Satan can counterfeit, but he can't create. Jesus can create. Only God can create. Therefore, Jesus is God. In the long-distance healing of the nobleman's son, Jesus, without even being physically present, demonstrated in that healing that he is the master of both time and space. Only God is the master of time and space. Jesus is the master of time and space. Therefore, Jesus is God. In the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, just a bit before this passage takes place, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Only God can claim lordship over the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is God. In his marvelous works, let her be in his saving work. In his saving work. We see it in, in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, certainly, biological, physical resurrection is somewhat in view here. But in light of the, the whole tenor of this passage, especially in light of what he's going to say about, about spiritual life from death in verse 25, I think what's more in view here is the saving work of Jesus. The Son gives life to whom he will. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3, verse 8. Jesus is in the business of saving people. Jesus is doing the saving work of the Father. He came to seek and save the lost. If this morning you are in Christ, if this morning you have followed Jesus as your Lord, you turn from your sin and you're trusting Jesus today, you do know that you are not the author of your own salvation, right? You do know that you loved him because he first loved you. You are saved by him. You are being kept by him. It is all of him. It is all of grace. You say, well, Brother Russell, I, I responded. I repented. I exercised faith. You did. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make it clear that even the faith with which you responded was not from just you. It was a gift of God to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is doing the work of saving. And if you're here this morning and there is in you an inclination, just an inclination to say perhaps there is something to the claim of Jesus Christ over my soul. Perhaps there is something to this notion that a creator made man in his image but man fell away from that image in sin, me included. And that if I'm going to be right with God, I need to respond to the love of Jesus. If there is that inclination in you this morning, you may be certain that inclination is not coming from you. 
That is God the Holy Spirit pricking your heart. And you would do well to flee from your sin and flee toward Jesus. Unbelief may at times seek to appear as an intellectual issue. Unbelief is rooted in the love of sin. And I love my sin more than I love the idea of a savior. If today that love of sin is decaying in you such that you would cry out for a savior, cry out, cry out, and know that he stands in all cases ready to save all who will turn from their sin and Repent. He's doing miraculous works. He's doing saving work. He's doing the work of judgment. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the standard whereby mankind will be judged, according to Acts 17, and he is the one who will do the judging. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, from the middle of verse 7 through verse 8, says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, this is not his first coming, this is his second, toward which we look forward. He's revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. That is, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Who? Those who do not obey the gospel. The gospel is a call to repentance and faith. It is to be obeyed, not merely intellectually agreed with, but submitted to, with heaven and hell at stake. Jesus discerns God's will so perfectly he is God. Jesus does the works that only God can do. Therefore, Jesus is God. Roman numeral three, Jesus demands worship that is only due to God. Therefore, Jesus is God. Verse 23, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Those may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus demands the worship that is appropriate only to God. Therefore, Jesus is God. There are various bogus forms of worship. For example, even in Scripture we see, letter A, we're not to worship angels. In Revelation chapter 22, <coughs> the apostle John, who has had sort of an angelic tour guide showing him the, the things that would comprise his revelation. In chapter 22, John is so overwhelmed by all that he has seen and, and heard and experienced, he falls down at the feet of his angelic tour guide and begins to worship him. And the angel says, don't do that. Paraphrasing, you're a created being, so am I. And created beings are not to be worshipped. Don't do it. So we don't worship angels. We don't, we don't worship the apostles. As much as we benefit from their example and their teaching as the foundations of the church, 
In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey come to the city of Lystra. There God uses Paul to, to conduct a miracle of physical healing. Well, the citizens of Lystra, who themselves were devoted to the worship of the Greek pantheon, decide that since Paul can accomplish this, he must be Zeus. And his talkative little buddy Barnabas must be Hermes or Mercury. So the priest of Zeus starts getting together everything necessary to conduct a sacrificial worship service aimed at Paul and Barnabas. And as soon as Paul figures out what's going on, he, appalled, says, whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't worship us. Worship God, who's our creator. We don't worship angels. We don't worship apostles. <clears throat> In fact, we don't worship anybody but God. Now, there are several world-scale, very popular forms of worship that purport to worship God but try to come at it by some means other than Jesus. One of the largest is Islam. And forever the Islamic apologists are claiming that the Allah of Islam is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Jesus our Savior. That is not true. That is emphatically not true. Allah is a demon in an Allah name tag. He is not the living God. And Islam is no way to know the living God. Listen to the words of Jesus again. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. <clears throat> if you're not worshiping Jesus as God, you're not worshiping God. So the, the non-God of Islam. And then there are the various counterfeit gods of, 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 of our present day culture. The, uh, the, the false small g god of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is God's little c son that will at least guide you toward maybe being one of God's accepted people. Mormonism, Jesus is the son of God in the same sense you can become a son of God and maybe have a planet of your own one day. Cuckoo, cuckoo. If you ask either of those cults, are, are you worshiping Jesus, they'll tell you yes. You ask them, do you believe Jesus is God? They'll tell you yes. So what you have to ask is, do you understand that Jesus is God as much as God the Father is God? They'll tell you no or they'll lie. Because they're, they're Jesus. The vending machine Jesus of the word faith movement of the crazies like the Copelands and the Hens. The Jesus who can be arm-twisted to serve your desires by you generating some level of faith within yourself and telling him what he's gonna do to your benefit. That ain't Jesus and that's not Christianity. Not remotely is that Christianity. Those in those movements do not honor the Son as he is and thus do not honor the Father. It's not Christianity. So we have the non-Jesus, we have the counterfeit Jesuses, then we have the, I don't know, the substitute Jesuses. Our Catholic friends avoid the word worship regarding their treatment of Mary. 
They use the word venerate, which by the way means worship. While they ask compassionate Mary to get busy Jesus' attention to do stuff. They pray to her, they bow to her, they blasphemously and idolatrously treat her as though she's God. They're not honoring the son. They're honoring this fictional version of Mary they've made up. And it does not get to the father. It is idolatrous and blasphemous. I, I know Roman Catholics who have become Christians, but they are saved out of and in spite of that system, not because of it. The way to get to the Father, the one and only way to get to a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ as he is and as he has revealed himself in his word. Jesus does perfectly the will of the Father. Jesus does the works of the Father. Jesus demands the worship of the Father. Jesus gives us the words of the Father. Truly, truly, verse 24, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus' words are the words of salvation. We have the complete set of everything God needs to say to us. And by trusting in the truth given to us in this word, we pass from death to life. And by the way, if you read this verse, it's clear we do so irrevocably. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you have heard his word and believed him, and we've seen false belief in John already. We're talking about authentic belief, surrendering belief, obedient belief. You have, you have eternal life. You have passed from death to life. You're not gonna one day get eternal life. You've already acquired it on the basis of his grace as you have received it by faith. Jesus delivers God's words, therefore Jesus is God. And finally, Jesus defines God's watershed. Now what is a, what is, what is a watershed? What is, this, what is this continental divide issue? Even some in our sermon planning team had not, had not encountered this concept before. The North American continent can be divided into two macro watersheds. Within each of these watersheds, there are various smaller watersheds. But the red line on the map on the screen defines the, the break point between the two great watersheds in the United States, so this part of the North American continent. Water that comes down on the, what is to you, the left side of that line, the west side of that line, water that comes up from a spring or comes down as rain, if nothing intervenes, that water ends up in the Pacific Ocean. That red line is called the Continental Divide. Everything west of it ends up eventually in the Pacific. On the east side of it, everything ends up in the Atlantic. By way of the Gulf of Mexico, perhaps. But theoretically, at the, at the very point where that line is, 10 or 20 feet can make the difference. 
A spring on this side will contribute to a stream that flows west. A spring on the other to a stream that flows east. The great watershed issue is Jesus. The passage says this, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who hear who? Those who hear Jesus. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is going to use that title for himself multiple times in the Gospel of John. He's already used it. And if you've not noted, Son of Man as a title for the Messiah comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's worth you looking at those two verses so you'll understand the weight of everything Jesus is saying every time he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, a coming literal physical resurrection, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He's not talking about work salvation here. He's talking about the ultimate good work. He's going to say in chapter six, this is the good work to follow me. Those who have reflected the character of Christ in a transformed life are one side of that watershed issue. Those who live an untransformed life because they've never known Jesus on the other side of that issue. Those who hear will live. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? If your response to that is an inclination to trot out your religious resume, I offer with respect that your religious resume is not as good as these Pharisees. There's no way you are as consumed with religious conformity and day-to-day righteousness as these professional Pharisees were. They had it all right, except Jesus. Do not be among them. Come to Jesus. Hear his voice and live.